Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. It was reported recently that the U.S. spent more than $2 trillion on the war in Afghanistan. That's $300 million per day, every day for two decades, with more big bills yet to come. Under three presidents, U.S. troops have been stationed in over 800 places around the world to fight the war on terror, while defense contractors and other private companies and individuals raked in record profits. The latest book by journalist in Washington, D.C., editor of Harper's Magazine, Andrew Coburn, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine, is an in-depth look at the role the military-industrial complex has played in U.S. history. It's published by Verso and brings Mr. Coburn to our show now. Welcome. Hey, good morning. Actually, it's the afternoon afternoon. here. (laughs) Uh, Now, uh, in his farewell uh, address, the famous farewell address to the American people in January 1961, President Eisenhower warned the nation about the increasing power of the military-industrial complex. Was there a moment in our history where a permanent, as opposed to just wartime armaments industry, emerged? Yeah, I'd say it had been going quite a good few years by the time uh, Eisenhower spoke up. Um, and it's unfortunate that he waited till he was halfway out the door of the White House before he made that you know, very significant uh, historic speech. I think it was when they um, really became locked in around 1948, I'd say 47, 48, when the, you know, it became accepted that we had to rearm, uh, that we were going to rearm, um, you know, around that time, the formation of NATO. I think um, even by the time the Korean War came along and set everything in stone, um, you know, the, the, we were into a war economy. Um, they tried a peace economy with the demobilization of the uh, the end of World War II, and it didn't really, you know, wasn't very, really very satisfactory. Uh, there were lots of people who'd made money in World War II crying out for help, particularly the aerospace industry. Um, I mean, we have, you know, it's documented. They said we basically were saying we have to have a we have to have a war scare. Uh, this is no good. Where mm-hmm. the civilian market isn't isn't working for us. Um, so let's go back to um, you know less butter, more guns. Uh, and it's been like that. Well, what are some saying, early examples of, of propaganda created by institutions within the U.S. government to keep the money stream flowing to the defense complex? Well, I mean, uh, you know, this done. The main sort of vehicle used is uh, has been. You know, st- you know, recurring threats. Um, I mean, overall, uh, for 50 years, uh, well, for, for 40 years, we had, you know, the Cold War with the Soviet Union. So that was sort of justified everything. But within that, there'd be specific, you know, sort of top-ups to, to boost when, you know, when for a moment it looked like the money flow might be slowing down, might be in danger of being diverted into you know, unwanted things like um, healthcare, education, housing, things you know civilians might actually want, along would come a sort of a top-up, a booster mm-hmm. shot, uh, I should say these days, uh, to the threat. And, um, and you say so no matter who's in power, someone seems to discover a huge new threat, a missile gap oh. or a budget spending gap or a missile defense gap. Invariably, this is, you know, people, 
you know, like to <clears throat> complain that bipartisanship is dead in Washington. Absolutely not the case on important matters like boosting the defense budget. Just very recently, we've had um, overwhelming majorities in the uh, in the House uh, and, and in the Congress against cutting the defense budget, overwhelming majorities on the Armed Services Committee to <clears throat> to pour more money into defense even than President Biden has asked for. Um, and this is just part of, you know, a historic process by which um, basically what the Pentagon wants, it gets. It's going on since uh, 1954 or so, around increasing around 5% a year. You examine yeah. how the expansion of NATO, the deployment of the U.S. Navy's Pacific Fleet and troop surges in Afghanistan were all based on financial concerns. Well, yes. I mean, take, going back to going on what you just said, or quite what I say in the book, uh, I point out that overall, since 1954, since the end of the Korean War, <clears throat> the year after the Korean War, if you look at the trace, the graph of defense spending and increases in defense spending, it's gone up overall by a, at a rate of 5%. I mean, sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less, but the under, under, you know, the steady curve is 5% up every year. Now, whenever it looks like that, the, the dip below, uh, more than a transitory uh, uh, dip below 5%, along comes a threat. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, manufactured in some cases, just because we well, need the threat? Invariably, and invariably manufactured. <laughs> um, uh, let me you know, give a notorious example. At the end of the Eisenhower administration, when Eisenhower, he was getting kind of fed up with, with all with this, uh, this process, and he wanted to spend money on a few other things. So the defense budget had, was being cut, and uh, uh, he was 15, at the end of the 50s. Along comes uh, the Democrats, along comes the missile gap, mm. a wholly, wholly fraudulent notion that the Russians suddenly had many more missiles than we did. And we were being you know, under the threat of nuclear annihilation by a vastly superior Soviet missile force. It was complete nonsense, of course. In fact, there was a missile gap in our favor. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one. Uh, let's see. Kennedy, I mean, you can cite the Vietnam War, really, as part of this process. I mean, Kennedy looked like he was actually thinking thinking of spending some money on social programs. He'd come off the sort of hawkish position that he'd won the presidency with, uh, that he'd come into office with. Um, Then along comes the threat of, you know, communist aggression in in Vietnam. Uh, So this doesn't, doesn't matter whether the president is a Democrat or a Republican. In fact, there were major increases during the Obama administration. Well, you know, it makes absolutely no difference at all. In fact, <clears throat> the Obama administration um, should be known to history for it's him, you know, waving the starter flag for an incredible buildup in nuclear weapons. Mm. Um, his nuclear modernization project, which is, you know, projected at a trillion dollars, you know, read two trillion uh, by the time we're done with that. If we ever are, which was you know new bomber, new missile, new uh, ground-based missile, new cruise missile, new nuclear submarine, new sub-launch missile, um, all you know an enormous escalation, uh, in certainly in cost and in you know turnover and weaponry, all completely unnecessary. You know we have 
have plenty of the means ready to hand to blow Russia and China to pieces if we feel like it. Uh, but no, they you know have to modernize, have to feed the beast. So the, you know this is the, the recurring theme in my book, which is in Spoils of War, which is that it's not about no, forget strategy or policy. You know they don't think that way. I mean they pretend to think that way, but the real objective is to keep the money flowing and increase it. But, um, but this is and, nothing you know, new, is it? After all, you, you point out that Alexander Hamilton wrote in Federalist Number 6, quote, innumerable wars originate entirely in private passions, in the attachments, enmities, interests, hopes, and fears of leading individuals and in the communities of which they are members. And we're talking, in this case, of a whole bunch of different um, areas where people benefit from keeping the uh, the military budget flowing, yeah, I mean Hamilton Hamilton committed truth there, and you know, of mm. course, the Federalist Papers are sacrosanct. But looks like no one ever reads them. Certainly not that <laughs> one, um, because um, that didn't make know, it into the musical. <laughs> certainly not. No, <laughs> um, like a lot of other things. Uh, the you know that's the point. They the impetus is always is to sort of pretend. That you know, they statesmen and generals and all the rest are thinking, you know, thinking in the public interest. Well, that if you look at it, that almost never happens. I mean, going back to you know the specific details in the book, um, the expansion of NATO instituted by Bill Clinton in the 90s hmm. is a very good example. I mean, uh, the Russians had been in with Soviets, well, then the Russians had been induced to withdraw from Eastern Europe, the enormous forces they had in Eastern Europe, which had justified NATO for decades, uh, on a promise, on a very clear promise made by our Secretary of State and ambassadors and everything, uh, that we would not expand NATO into Eastern Europe. That was the deal. And it was very clear that was the deal. Um, so the Russians duly go home. And, and there's a couple of years when it's all peace and you know, amity. And then, hey, presto, we start making moves to bring Eastern European countries into NATO. Uh, why? Well, for various grubby reasons. Uh, most, I think most importantly, it seemed, it's clear most importantly, and for the people I talked to in, in writing about this, they made it very clear. The principal instrument was a guy called Norm Augustine, who was the head of the Lockheed Martin Corporation, who was very anxious to sell F-16 fighters in Eastern Europe. I mean, he had a lot of people, uh, you know, pushing along with him. I mean, the, you know, efforts to sell helicopters to Romania when there was no running water in the Romanian in the <laughs> Bucharest hospitals. I mean, it was disgusting. But it was, you know, a money-making enterprise. Uh, the other thing, impetus, was that uh, Bill Clinton had been persuaded, uh, or not that he took much persuading, that um, he'd get more votes in Milwaukee from the Polish, uh, get, get the, more of the Polish vote if Poland was admitted into NATO. So, okay, fine. Uh, let's have Poland in NATO, and, you know, scarf up a few extra votes, which is what he thinks was thinking about. The consequence was, of course, has been, you know, first of all, big profits for Lockheed, Raytheon, Northrop, and all the rest, and absolutely guaranteed built-in Russian hostility. You know, any Russian you talk to will say, hey, you broke the deal. 
So naturally, you know, we don't trust you. Naturally, we're going to, on you know, whatever meager resources they have, build up their military, which had more or less disintegrated in the early 90s. And you know, so we have guaranteed Cold War, you know, 2.0 in Europe for, for into the foreseeable future in a very neat operation by the military-industrial complex. Didn't Clinton also fudge the situation in uh, in Iraq, uh, uh, the, the sanctions were imposed, which killed hundreds of thousands of children, were enforced to compel Saddam Hussein to abandon his, his purported uh, arsenal of weapons of mass destruction. But as was later confirmed uh, by people like Rolf Aki- Akias, is it? The chief UN uh, weapons yeah. inspector for much of the period. The Clinton administration knew very well, at least from the spring of 1997, that Saddam Hussein had no weapons of mass destruction. So there was no real legal basis for continuing the embargo. But Clinton was afraid that lifting sanctions would cost him politically. That's right. I mean, uh, I explained this story. I mean, it's. That's why I bring it up, because it's in the book. <laughs> It's in my book. No one, uh, people should pay attention to this because they won't read it anywhere, haven't read it anywhere else. Yes, uh, Achaeus, he'd been, you know, the special inspector general. Um, they're doing very thorough investigations around Iraq from 91 onwards. Um, and, you know, he was a very, he was no sympathizer to Saddam, quite the opposite. I mean, he was. Um, very hard over all his best friends were neocons and so forth. Um, but he had to, he had concluded that by 1997, you know, that there was nothing there. I mean, they knew they had abundant evidence. They combed, <clears throat> excuse me, they'd combed Iraq from top to bottom looking for weapons of mass destruction, couldn't find any. Then Saddam's son in law had defected, um, the Sein Kamal, and in 1996 and told them. They debriefed him very thoroughly, and he said, no, we don't have any weapons of mass destruction. We did have some. We poured it all away in 1991. So finally, you know, it was clear, absolutely clear, that there was nothing there, and there was therefore no reason to keep sanctions, no reason to go on starving Iraqi babies. And he went, he was going to announce this at the UN. I mean, he told me all this. Um, And... He, but he he went and he told the administration, he told the White House, he said, you know, uh, I'm going to have to say this and I'm going to have to recommend that auto, you know, under <clears throat> the conditions of the on which sanctions were, UN sanctions were imposed and now void and we'll have to lift them. And as you say, you know, the Clinton administration went into a panic for reasons you explained that the... Um, uh, you know, the Republicans would say, oh, you know, Clinton had let Saddam off the hook. Um, so they sent out Madeleine Albright. I, I was there at this speech uh, on stage at uh, Georgetown University. And she said, whether there are weapons of mass destruction or not, <laughs> we will keep sanctions in place. And that had the predict what they had the the result that they wanted, which was Saddam said, well, in that case, you know, I'm not going to cooperate with the inspectors anymore, which he had been doing. You know, now, you know, I know they're all CIA agents anyway. Um, So then we had several years of, if you remember, you know, harassment of inspectors and people, you know, shouting confrontations and complaints that the Iraqis weren't cooperating. Of course, they weren't. Why should they? They knew it was all a a fraud. Um, 
you know, on the steady slope down to 2003 and the invasion. So I hold, you know, we all rightly condemn George Bush and, you know, would throw shoes at him if we could uh, <clears throat> for launching that war. But really, his partner in crime was Bill Clinton on this. You're listening to London Lopin at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Andrew Coburn, whose latest book is The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine, published by Verso. You uh, report that two former national security experts at the Brookings Institution stated that the goal of expanding NATO into Eastern Europe in the 1990s was to, quote, promote peace and stability on the European continent through the integration of new Central and Eastern European democracies into a wider European community in which the United States would remain deeply engaged. But then you say that actually wasn't the case? It was driven instead by the desire to open new markets for American arms companies? Yeah. <laughs> of course they have to come out with waffle like that. That's the job of Know, people who who sort of orbit between think tanks and you know government senior policy policy positions. I mean that's the job of a policymaker is to think up good excuses for what they want to do anyway. Um, and you know there's an axiom, an old Pentagon axiom, which is uh, the function of the United States government has two functions. One is to buy arms at home, and the other is to sell arms abroad. And that's what the U.S. government is there to do. Does and, it, do we know, make any profit on the deal? Could, what? Do we make any profit, or is it mostly, uh, mostly more expensive for the United States? Well, it's more expensive for the United States in all sorts of ways. But I mean, they. Uh, but their function is to sell arms. You know, to if you can. You know to the enrichment of the Lockheed Corporation and uh, and and the like, and all the money that pours from the military interests into the trouser pockets of um, our elected representatives, um, all the jobs, you know, the, or else into our um, you know senior military leaders, all of whom look very eagerly forward to their post-retirement positions on the boards of uh, you know leading defense companies. Um, <clears throat> and just you know, fought back bitterly and successfully against any effort to curb you know the revolving door. I mean, uh, you know, the, the, some standout examples like uh, uh, Secretary, uh, former Secretary of Defense Mattis, um, Jim Mattis, much beloved by the liberals because he was so thoughtful and sort of said some rude things about Trump now and again. Um, but he was on. He retired as a four-star general. Went on the board of. Um, uh, General Dynamics, among other things, um, made a million dollars from just from that. Uh, was then hired to be Secretary of Defense by Trump. Um, you know, had a fairly bumpy term as Secretary of Defense and uh, resigned and went back on the board of uh, Secretary of uh, General Dynamics. He must have made another million dollars by now. Um, and you know, so on down the line. Um, you know, there's a study by the. Washington outfit, the project on government oversight that's totted up, I think it's over 300, 340 something, um, three star, four and three star general officers and admirals who've uh, gone in the last few years, who've gone to senior positions in the defense industry who, you know, who were selling them weapons beforehand. I mean, it's, it's, um, You know, the corruption is so naked and unashamed, we don't even, you know, we hardly notice it anymore. 
You mentioned Lockheed and General Dynamics. Who are the, the major defense contractors in the United States? Are they all major well, corporations? Oh, yeah, very major corporations. I mean, Lockheed is number one, and there's Raytheon, uh, General Dynamics, uh, Northrop, uh, Northrop, or Northrop Grumman, I think it's still called. And an interesting one, which is, or many other one I want to mention, is BAE Systems, which is interesting in that it's as a British company, um, which has successfully sort of integrated itself into the um, American defense system. Um, <clears throat> in, all, in ways, I mean, it doesn't get the, it deserves more attention, uh, certainly among the British, but, and certainly also here. And if, you know, Again, people, you, you can read sort of by the yard, uh, you know, analyses of the U.S.-U.K. relationship and shared interests and shared burdens. And, and now we have that it, with the, the nuclear submarine sale to Australia. Well, exactly. I was going to that. Um, and no one ever mentions BAE Systems, which is, uh, you know, the linchpin of the relationship. And in fact... The, you know, they say this, the US-UK submarine sale to Australia, um, uh, the BAE has been very successfully infiltrating the whole sort of Australian defence complex, such as it is several years. You'll find that there's been a very steady movement, you know, whenever a senior Australian defence official has been retiring in recent years, it goes straight on to a very plummy job at uh, BAE, which was, you know, all to, um, you know, for the purpose, particularly, I think, of setting up this submarine deal um, and, you know, whatever else they want to sell them. Uh, BAE's, anyway, that's uh, that's just one major corporation, which I, I find very interesting because of its, um, you know, because of the fact, I don't think it's ever happened before that you've had a, a foreign-owned or uh, partly foreign-owned, you know, defense corporation being part of the American defense system in this way. Can we blame that on Winston Churchill? That's just a bad <laughs> joke. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> we can try. You write that the choice of weapons and other equipment deployed for specific missions is dictated by Pentagon politics rather than the requirements uh, on, on the battlefield. Isn't that counterproductive? Well, it depends what the objective is. I mean, uh, it's very productive. It's very, it's kind of productive if you actually want to sort of have an efficient way of, you know, defending defending the country or you know prosecuting a war. Or, um, then that's very counterproductive. It's very productive um, if the objective is, as I argue, and I feel very confident is the case, and I argue throughout this book, Spoils of War. Um, that the objective is to make money, and that works very well. I mean, an example I cite a couple of times in the book. Uh, I mean, in two sections um, is an air force is the U.S. Air Force, and a plane called the A-10, which is a was designed for reasons I, I explain um, actually in the first chapter. Uh, it, it sort of happened by accident, but it, and then by accident, the, the Air Force acquired a very capable plane, which was designed specifically to help troops on the ground. It's called the Warthog. Why? Because it's sort of ugly. The, 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 the pilots call it, with affection, the Warthog, because it's sort of, it's kind of an ugly plane. Uh, 
not mm. so sleek and streamlined like the ones the Air Force generals like. Um, so it, it protects ground troops well. Yeah. And that it sounds great. Well. Yeah, it's great. And ground troops love it, naturally. Well, but the Air Force hates it. They hate this plane because, first of all, it's a sort of reminder of their lowly origins as a branch of the army. And they spent decades in a great deal of trouble and did all sorts of things to become an independent service. And so having this mission, having this plane, which is there to sort of work with the ground troops, with these sort of miserable infantrymen, um, is a sort of horrid reminder. You know, it's like someone who's, you know, become an aristocrat and there's a sort of, a, you know, the granny who still talks with the country accent hanging around or something. It's uh, So they hate it sort of viscerally for that reason. They hate it um, because it, it detracts from, you know, it's distraction from what they are, their sort of mission um, they, their proclaimed mission, which is to sort of deep strike interdiction with the whole idea that you can win wars by bombing the enemy's rear area and destroying his sort of society. It means of sustaining a war, which is the, you know, that's what they used, that argument they used to justify their separate and independent existence. And... And, and it's why they prefer the $300 million B-1 bomber over the A-10? Right. Yeah. And, uh, I, and the, uh, that's exactly why. A B-1 bomber uh, designed, to, you know, originally designed and sold to drop nuclear weapons on Moscow at supersonic speeds. Since they have to, you know, say they can't say, well, we, we don't want to protect troops on the ground at all. They said they've been designating this B-1 bomber. And I tell, you know, two story, two rather chilling stories in the book about one case where the A-10s were meant to be attacking an enemy position. And they, because the A-10 is designed to allow you, the pilots, to have a close-up view of what's going on on the ground, they can fly low and slow in safety because it's so well armoured and protected. And they could see that this target was not an enemy outpost, but was a... Uh, a simple Afghan farmhouse with a family bringing the animals in for the evening. It was getting getting towards dusk. So they said, no, we're not going to bomb it. They refused. The B-1, cycling miles overhead, said, we'll do it, we'll do it, uh, or ready to copy, um, and accordingly dropped nine tons of bombs on this farmhouse and blew away an Afghan family. Um you know, it's an instructive, it's just one tiny little massacre in what was a... a you know, in all, 20 years of massacre in Afghanistan, but I thought it was an instructive story that I happened to hear about from people very closely involved. Well, you also and write about the killing of five American servicemen and one Afghan in Afghanistan in June 2014 because the three because the B-1 bomber was was used. Uh, it's a it's a supersonic. It's a, Plane. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, they, how how close can it even get to to the land, or, or and know what's what it's bombing? Well, no, nowhere they don't go close because you know at that point it'd be quite easy to shoot down. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's big. This one was at uh, I think it was at twelve twelve thousand feet from memory, um, and 
the person aiming the bombs was sitting in a sort of metal sort of box, really, inside the plane. Couldn't certainly couldn't see the outside, anything in the outside world, let alone what was going on, on the ground. The um, the technology that the plane had for recognizing who was a friendly and who was an enemy didn't work for them. I mean, couldn't work. And no one had told them that actually, I mean, the, the, the men on the ground had infrared strobes on their helmets so that the, any plane, friendly plane overhead could see the strobes, but the B-1 couldn't see the strobes. And no one had told anyone that they that that was the case. So when they saw someone fighting muzzle flashes from guns firing way, way down below, they could just sort of by peering out the window sort of see that. Uh, they said, OK, well, that's the, uh, the, you know, they must be Taliban enemy. Um, so drop the bombs. Um, and that's how they killed five American soldiers. The reaction of the Air Force, as I explained, was to cover this up and to blame the ground commander. Um, who was a very capable young officer, sort of person they should really want to keep and promote in the army, you know, smart, brave, dedicated. No, they said, oh, it was somehow all his fault. And, um, and, they, and they, they also invited a New York Times reporter to fly in a B-1 bomber as a way of... Oh, right. That was their, that was their Making their case. They're, they're, well, they did two things immediately. One was to set in motion a sort of cover-up investigation, and two, to invite this, you know, fairly uncritical, known to be uncritical, New York Times reporter uh, to come along for a joyride, who accordingly published a sort of glowing piece about how wonderful how wonderful the B-1 was, what a great plane, and how, what a marvelous view of the you know, of the sky you get from the cockpit, failing to mention that you don't get much of a view of the ground, which is how they managed to kill, you know, they had just days before killed five Americans. Um, and, you know, the by the way, the B-1 left a trail of carnage across Afghanistan because uh, it kept hitting civilians and killing scores of them uh, for just this reason, not because they necessarily wanted, they didn't care much, but they didn't actually set out to kill civilians. It just it was completely hopeless for the task, but it was completely useful for the task in justifying the Air Force budget. And that was the point. The point is not to win. The point is to win greater budget share. Mm. In the uh, the rivalry between the different services, uh, we're going to take a little break. This is WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Come, you man, With Andrew Coburn, whose latest book is The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine, published by Verso. How much uh, are U.S. relations with Saudi Arabia based on arms sales? Uh, And what's the history of U.S. defense contractors selling arms to the the Royal Kingdom? Well, I mean, that is the relationship. Um, You know, it's less so. It always used to be primarily oil. And that is still very important, but um, you know now that the U.S. produces much more oil of its own, 
that's really not the linchpin the way it used to be. Um, no, it's it's weapon sales. I mean, there's a there's a <clears throat> there's a wonderful sort of uh, I don't know, a little tableau you can find online of American whole series of American presidents, uh, mm. certainly Bush, Obama, Trump, uh, Clinton, all bowing, all in the same position, all bowing while some guy with a tea cloth over his head, uh, I mean, the Saudi king, um, you know, drapes a golden chain, and they're all sort of bowing respectfully. <laughs> it really sums up the obsequious attitude of... Um, you know, of our, of our leaders to Saudi Arabia. But the key, as, as you suggest, is, is arms sales. I and mean, and uh, haven't the Saudis used those weapons to commit atrocities in the civil war in Yemen? Yeah, absolutely. They couldn't have, they couldn't have uh, committed those atrocities, certainly in the degree they have, without these weapons. I mean, we it's quite right to call this the U.S.-Saudi war in Yemen because you know, we have been absolutely integral to it. I mean, for a long time, we were refueling the bomber, you know, the planes as they went off to bomb, you know, hospitals and clinics and um, food stores and everything else in Yemen. I mean, how could, I mean, <clears throat> Congress, if, you know, if we had anything approaching what the founders imagined the Congress to, would be, uh, it would have been, should have been up in arms and said, you know, stop this, this, this is a war, we are at war in Yemen, which we have been. Uh, you know, if you supply, if you supply the fuel, um, which we were selling, by the way, you know, we were refueling the Saudi planes and then <laughs> and then sending them a bill, so we were making money out of it. Um, we were, you know, constantly supplying, you know, topping up their reserves of, uh, um, you know, bombs and missiles. Um, we were very much helping with the intelligence. I mean, sickeningly, really. I mean, telling them where to bomb under the guise of making sure they didn't hit civilians. Well, uh, <clears throat> you know, wonderful excuse, but what we were doing them was, you know, helping them with the targeting. And, the, you know, the actual plane bombers, you know, principally F-15s, but other, other planes as well, you know, we, we'd sell them, you know, there were huge sales. Actually... You know, commenced under under Obama. Um, I mean, it's been going on for you know, this has been going on since the fifties, but it really, really stepped up. And I have to say that the Obama administration really put a big sort of lot of effort into topping up, uh, stepping up um, arms sales. Um, you know, Hillary Clinton was thrilled when the Saudis put in a big order for F-15s early on <laughs> in her time at the State Department. Um, you know, it's it, it is completely disgusting that. Yeah, and then Trump had a very close relationship with them as well. Yeah, but Trump it's, being a big But it's, it's no, it should be noted that 15 of the 19 9 11 hijackers were uh, Saudis. Uh, and there's, uh, there was a suit, wasn't there? Uh, filed no, on behalf of, of family members of, of the victims uh, that um, against the, the Saudi government for supporting uh, the, uh, well, the creation, growth, and operations of al-Qaeda. How has that played out? Well, it's been going on, you know, it's, it, it, I guess we're into 20 Not years Not been resolved? Now. No. Um, the administration, the, <clears throat> I mean, the, the 
the families, they have good lawyers. There's a whole slew of law firms, including one representing not the families, but the insurance companies um, who had to pay out on 9-11 and are quite interested in getting some of their money back. Um, so it's quite a formidable legal te or legal teams that have been involved in this. And they've been slogging away all this time. They've had you know, very uh, naturally no no support, quite the contrary, from the administration or administrations. Um, the Obama administration fought bitterly. Uh, you know, what the, the prime defense of the Saudis was, you know, what well, we're, you know, the, the under US law, you can't really sue a sovereign country. And so the, you know, the, the suit was bogged, bogged down on that basis. But um, then, actually, the families lobbied very successfully and got the law changed so they could sue Saudi Arabia. Obama vetoed that, and then they got, you know, they got the Congress to override the veto. So, um, you know, it's been a steady story of, and, you know, slowly they've been winkling out documents, all of which, you know, steadily, you know, with massive reductions in pages and pages and pages all blacked out. But it's become very, very clear that, first of all, the um, that the hijackers had significant, well, had crucial support from agents agencies of the Saudi government, and that secondly, it's become very clear that the Saudi that the FBI, at least, and um, other U.S. agencies, had full, you know, had. Ha swiftly uncovered evidence of this, which they've covered up ever since. But I we're mean, selling arms to them nonetheless, still. Well, hey, you know, uh, what, do we, what do you want, justice or a billion dollars? I think we settled for the billion dollars. Now, didn't John Sopko, the uh, special inspector general for Afghan reconstruction, tell you that the entire system in Afghanistan was geared toward waste? How, how and why was that? Well, he says, I mean, what John's point was, he said the whole thing is set up, you know, first of all, that the um, the officials, the all the bureaucrats involved in in shelling out the running the effort in Afghanistan, both the the military one and the but also, you know, the whole civilian reconstruction effort, which is he was particularly tasked at looking at. It's all geared to spending money. Hmm. You get promoted if you spend money. And, uh, and let me interrupt a second to add a detail. When Donald Trump announced a, a mini surge in Afghanistan, didn't the four-star generals admit that although it wouldn't make any difference in the war, it would do them good at budget time and mean more money for their services? Well, they didn't say that. They said they certainly didn't admit that in public. Uh, I mean, that's a direct Well, you've heard quote. that from somebody. I heard that. It's a direct quote um, uh, from a meeting, a very meeting of senior um, generals. And uh, my informant was a staffer, an officer who was in the room, who was completely disgusted, actually led to his ultimate resignation from the, from the service. Um, that they, you know, they took, the, they would say, well, to do it good at budget time. Who cares? You know, it won't make a difference to the war, but it will do us good at budget time. But, you know, but Subco's point is, going back to Subco, that... You know the money you get promoted for spending money, hmm. and if you spend money, and he was giving, he gave me examples of, uh, 
you know, like they ordered a bunch of um, 500, they spent $500 million on a fleet of transport planes for the Afghan Air Force that couldn't fly. I mean, they just made it into the <laughs> into Kabul Airport or into Bagram. And they were so decrepit, they couldn't <laughs> fly again. They'd been bought secondhand in Italy. And it was all organized by an a former Air Force general who'd gone into civilian life and set up this contract. No one got punished for this. No one got uh, demoted. No one uh, or anything else. No one got, uh, and he said no one, no one missed a promotion. He said no one even missed a bonus. So the whole system was geared to, you know, if you, what the objective was, if you were a component, if you were a bureaucrat or an officer, was to spend the money uh, and that's what you were rewarded for, and you were by no by no means punished for wasting money. Uh, that the planes are just one of a thousand examples he came across, and so that is the system: is to, you know is to enable the money flow and the people. You know, people <clears throat> progressives say, and quite rightly, you know, God, we're wasting you know hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars on defense that we need for you know to shore up you know this. Fiasco of a healthcare system we have, of a you know de decrepit educational system. Uh, we you know we should take money away from it. Well, it's too expensive. Bad. Yeah, it's true. But no, I mean that's what they're saying. It's too expensive, but they don't say this is too expensive. Right, and the point is what they what people have to understand more generally. It gives us a lousy defense. Mm. You know, if you. I mean, conservatives should should get this on board. If you believe in a strong defense, which they say they do, I'm sure they do, um, this system that they're supporting is actually ensuring a weak defense. It's ensuring that we can't, you know, protect our troops on the ground. It's ensuring that, um, you know, that we have uh, you know, ships at sea that, you know, are so badly uh, equipped and crews so badly trained that they keep, you know, bumping it, you know, crashing into each other, as story I tell in the in the book. Um, you know, it's uh, it leads, you know, it's it's weakening. American defense is the, is the system. And it's a lot, and by sucking up all the money, it's also weakening, up, weakening American health, American education, and everything else that we should be, should be um, taking care of. Well, one of, the shocking, one of the shocking stories you tell in the book is that although Marines in Afghanistan's Helmand province appreciated the support of a, a powerful tribal leader, Sher Mohammed, Akhundzada in, in battling the ta Taliban. Weren't the enemies he designated often not Taliban, but supporters of his chief business rival in the drug trade? Another tribal yes. leader who had a similar alliance with the British forces that were sharing the same headquarters as, as the Marine Corps? Uh, yeah, right. I mean, it, 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 it was, it, that's the whole thing reduced to farce. I mean, a rather a bloody farce because people were getting killed. But yeah, they, we were so uninterested in in the you know the reality of Afghanistan, because we were in, you know we were interested in the other things that I've been talking about, so they never bothered to really find out what was going on. So when Sher Mohammed Akhundzada, very charming and individual, said came to them and said, "Ah, oh, you know, I will help you, and I can tell you who the where the Taliban are, and you know, have another delicious Afghan stew, and you know." Uh, <clears throat> That they um, they accepted his advice readily. They were charmed, you know. All these, you know, some colonel who hadn't a clue what was going on, um, 
and was ready to mount an operation against the, <laughs> the people designated the Taliban, who were, of course, the, his rivals in the opium trade. And it's, um, it, was, it was really, that is the ultimate stage of the fiasco, um, that we had no concept and there was another element I would want to point out, but meanwhile, as I say, we were killing lots of people and suffering our own casualties um, because, uh, and thereby thereby embittering, you know, making sure that the Taliban had plenty of support. And there was a chilling conversation I had. I mean, it was an officer who served in Helmand who told me that he said, you know, I was asking why they launched so many airstrikes on the, you know, which killed civilians. And he said, well, the whole system is geared towards violence because, like this is going back to what Hamilton talked about, personal interests. Of course, every officer wants to get promoted. So if you call it after any kind of action, any kind of operation, you have to write a report. Uh, I mean, if you go and have tea with a village elder, that you write a report. If you call in an airstrike on that village elder or whoever, that counts as a combat report. Even doesn't it doesn't matter. It matter it happened miles away. If you ordered, if you commissioned the airstrike, that's a combat report. Then uh, you, the more combat reports you get, the more easily you get promoted. The more medals you get. The, cushy assignments you get. So the whole system encourages you, uh, an officer, to... My friend said, um, hey, you know, maybe sometimes, maybe maybe it'd be better to do something not violent. It would help our objective of whatever, you know, pacifying the region if we sometimes thought rather than calling an airstrike, we did something else. To which his colleague said, you're overthinking it. These people need to be killed. My guest on today's London Low Pit at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Andrew Coburn, whose latest book is The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, and the American War Machine, published by Verso. Isn't the, um, uh, the U.S. war effort, hasn't it become increasingly privatized with private security contractors feeding the machine uh, of these forever wars. What effect will that have on the military-industrial complex? Well, I mean, it enriches, of course, <clears throat> as usual, the you know, people who are profiting of it, you know, like these security contractors, which, you know, in the end are owned by um, big Wall Street firms, a lot of them, uh, manned by... You know, people who've retired from the military, uh, including senior ones who go to plushy things. It has other effects, which is, you know, you have a contract with, you know, to supply, you know, whatever, food, you know, all the things the military used to do for itself, move food, maintenance, all sorts of things. It means that there's less money uh, to do, you know, to do training, uh, to do the maintenance, in-house maintenance, because you committed to you know, pouring out all this money to contractors, who of course are much more expensive. I mean, it's one of the reasons that the defense budget has to be high, is high, is that you know that it's a very inefficient way of running your military. Um, is to you know is to is to subcontract it out because um, you know they all have to add their uh, their uh, percentage profit profit percentage on. Um, and there's actually a little-known feature of this, which makes it even more expensive, which is all these 
so many of the contracts, private contracts, go through the big contractors. So, for example, for a while, the U.S. military, U.S. Army was buying Russian helicopters to give to the Afghan Air Force, which was in a way, I mean, it wasn't such a bad system. It went all went horribly wrong in the end. But, um, but to do that, the contract went to Northrop Grumman, who had nothing to do with, you know, didn't know anything about Russian helicopters and all the rest. But they simply took 15% and subcontracted it to another company, which then went and, you know, bought the helicopters in Russia, or reconditioned them, sold them at a huge markup to the U.S. Army, who then gave them to the Afghans. But I mean, the, you know, 15% of that budget, you know, went straight into the pockets of Northrop Grumman for doing nothing. And that happens, you know, in this whole privatization scheme, that happens all the time that, you know, everyone takes a bite um, before it ends up, you know, with some someone actually doing the work at the bottom. Now, President Biden ran on a platform of opposing the production of new nuclear weapons and the Democratic Party platform in 2020 stated, quote, the Trump administration's proposal to build new nuclear weapons is unnecessary, wasteful, and indefensible. So what's happened since? Where does the Biden administration currently stand on that? (laughs) Need you ask. Uh, the Biden administration has, you know, has jacked up the budget for nuclear weapons, has made no effort whatsoever to curb all these sort of very, <clears throat> very worrying trends that are happening in nuclear, happening in nuclear weapons, including, um, you know, these very low yield nuclear weapons, which are, you know, the, you find more and more suggestions that they are really you know, more or less like conventional weapons as such, so small in nuclear terms. I mean, they're huge in conventional terms, but the line is becoming very blurred. But particularly answer your question, I just noticed that uh, today or yesterday, they fired an official, or they reorganized the nuclear planning side and gotten rid of an official whose name escapes me, remember that, um, who was, had been arguing for, 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 for fewer nuclear weapons. Um, so they, you know, they're rather indicative that they, they're cleaning out uh, anyone who might query the push for a much bigger nuclear force. Next year, uh, this person was working on the nuclear posture review, which is due next year, which will sort of explain why we're, what we're doing with our nuclear weapons and what we'd like to do with them. The indications are, and it's a very frightening one, um, which again, I, you know, I, I talk about in the book that the whole, the whole push to sort of make it more e- easier to have a nuclear war. And that's been happening. I mean, <clears throat> I tell the story of how, excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, how they, um, uh, they've streamlined the the process by which the president, uh, you know, the warning comes as an enemy attack on the way, enemy missiles on the way. It used to be fairly streamlined, but still a few sort of kinks, you know, had to go through a rather low-level officer before who had the job of waking up the president. Now they've made it so it goes straight to a four-star, uh, four-star general, who's in charge of all the missiles, and he gets to wake up the president, and because he, he's a four-star general, and he's much, going to be much less shy about it. And those calls 
none of them, they haven't actually led to a launch, thank God, but those calls are becoming more frequent because now you have a four-star general who's, you know, who's the, who's the direct link to the president of the United States to tell him that maybe he should think about launching the arsenal. Um, Unfortunately, we've run out of time. I'm so sorry. And I I couldn't get to a whole bunch of other things I wanted to get to, like your reports on blockades, on the the Office of Foreign Assets Control and and such. But um, I guess that's why people should check out your book. Uh, And I want to thank you so much for being on our show. Andrew Coburn, his latest book, The Spoils of War, Power, Profit, The American War Machine from Verso. He's also the author with Patrick Coburn of Out of the Ashes, The Resurrection of Saddam Hussein. Um, His most recent book was Kill Chain, The Rise of the High-Tech Assassins. He also wrote Rumsfeld, His Rise, Fall, and the Catastrophic Legacy, and and also Kill Chain, The Rise of the High-Tech Assassins. You'll find a lot of his articles articles uh, in various publications, including the, uh, the publication where he is an editor. Uh, and uh, I thank you so much for being on our show today. Absolutely. A great pleasure. It's fun. Thank you. And uh, that brings us to the end of our show, unfortunately. Special thanks to segment producer Todd McGovern for preparing today's interview. If you'd like to check out more of our one-hour interviews on one subject, you can access our archives at WBAI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else that podcasts are available. And you'll also find links to our over 500 past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I go, I need to ask you to consider supporting WBAI as we struggle to stay afloat during this difficult time. We're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now. That's 212-209-2950 to keep this unique, in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. You know, WBAI is the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, but that means that, quite frankly, that we rely on the support of listeners like you to stay on the air. It's the way this whole crazy experiment in completely listener-sponsored radio works. And if you like the sound of of no corporate uh, overlords telling us how to do this show, why not come on board and help us to keep it going? We might not have all of the state-of-the-art, cutting-edge technology here at WBAI, but you have to admit we're refreshingly independent. So give us that call right now, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org to keep Leonard Lopez at large coming to you on WBAI weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And from all of us at the station, our great thanks to everyone who's already contributed. And I hope you'll join us again tomorrow when industrial hygienist Monona Russell will be taking your calls on where we go from here in dealing with the COVID pandemic. We'll see you then.